So are you tired of your own thoughts yet? You know, uh, sometimes I think these talks are just so that uh, uh, you can uh, stop some of the chatter in your own head. You know. So I thought I would uh, begin here with uh, some irreverence um, to email. A couple from Michigan decided to go to Florida to thaw out during a particular icy winter. They planned to stay at the very same hotel where they spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of a hectic schedule, it was difficult to coordinate their reservations, so the husband left Michigan a few uh, and, a f and flew to Florida on Thursday and his wife flew down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel. There was a computer in the room, so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, however, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address, and without realizing it, his error, he sent it. The email, meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a woman had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a minister for many years and had been called home to glory following a sudden heart attack. The widow decided to check her email. Sure, no one does that. Anyway, uh, expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room and found her, her mother on the floor and saw the computer screen, which read, To my loving wife, I've arrived. I know you're surprised to hear from me. <laughs> they have computers here now. <laughs> and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and have been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared <laughs> for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine. P.S. Sure is hot down here. Ah, you need a little of that. So, tonight, you know, this is such a... Um, interesting time of year uh, where it's paradox you know there's all this busyness going on and traffic and uh, it just you know it's kind of a little mania out there and uh, yet this is the time uh, when uh, we have this fallow time to kind of uh, rest in uh, how it is you know and so I applaud you for choosing this time uh, to come and, um, you know, in essence, uh, kind of touch that fallow and allow it in some ways to, uh, you know, as the earth is now uh, quiet, that it also gives you permission to be quiet and to kind of listen to what it is that's kind of pushing along there. So, in my style, I usually like to do some kind of poem that 
I've um, done something with over the time. It's called Waking Up to the Dark. Oh yes, we came to rest in that silence, knowing somehow that our curious past with its ferocity was dragging us down on this restless seat. Oh, these teachings of respecting the power of the night and its long darkness, that infinite contraction when the fear grasps our sanity and throws us down the stairwell into the basement of our own minds. How could this be about liberation? Struggling with the inability in inability of change and these aging bodies. Yet, yet there are these moments, small little cracks, where life begins, life begins to know itself. You are more, you are more than your stories and even your struggles. When the stillness of the dark is at its zenith, the light has slipped under the carpet, giving us another chance, another chance, redemption, redemption close at hand. Questioning this identity, this inherited and constructed views, having done some of the work to turn yourself, to turn yourself inside out, turning the mind and heart on itself. Lo and behold, the primordial, natural, pure awareness, which has been with you ever since birth, unblemished, was your home, was your home all along. So I like stories, and so uh, a story I've told for a long time, but it, uh, you know, uh, it also has uh, great meaning to me and has been uh, helpful in, uh, in remembering uh, just how uh, profound when uh, we forget or we get lost, we get caught in a thing called desire or aversion. So many, many moons ago, uh, in the Himalayas, when I was a aspiring uh, young yogi um, who was uh, somewhat uh, hell-bent on liberation. And uh, so I spent uh, time up in this retreat house. I uh, lived up there about six months and I don't know, for three or four years. And um, usually around April, the snow started to recede and, and then um, then uh, May, it usually was good weather in this Kulu Valley. And um, 
So there was always a piece of me that was looking for, uh, you know, adventure. I always liked to climb mountains. I've been to Kailash. I've climbed Mount Fuji in a uh, uh, typhoon. <laughs> I've kind of just been out there, you know, uh, looking for uh, some little crack in my own world, you know, so that somehow that that we know is a little piece of uh, peace or ease or freedom uh, is available. So story. So there was uh, this mountain, Hanuman Tib, and uh, I think it's around 22 or something thousand. It's up there a ways, you know. And uh, when this wonderful time of year uh, called Vesak or Vesak comes, and it is uh, essentially for the Buddhist community, uh, it is uh, the full moon uh, of May, which corresponds to the birth, uh, the enlightenment, the first teaching, and the passing away of the Buddha. So it uh, has a lot of, uh, what is it, um, 2,600 years of uh, history to it. So because of that, and because there was a mountain there, and I was there, then uh, there could be no other thing but to go up for Vesak. And it happened to be that, uh, you know, it's a full moon, so I thought, oh, it's perfect time. And the weather was quite good at that moment uh, when the decision was made. But uh, in the morning, I, 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 I started probably three or four in the morning with a flashlight and started up uh, this river canyon. Um, and I walked all morning and then um, midday I ran into a sheep herder and that was the only person I ran into on my way. And I kept climbing, and, but I noticed that the clouds started to move in. And they, um, this is one of the things about full moons and one of the things about uh, the Himalayas uh, is you never know, you know. So, um, and, and, and a, a little context here. Um, I had a down bag. Uh, they weren't waterproof in those days. And a down jacket it also was not waterproof in those days. And I had Chinese tennis shoes that didn't really have much traction on them. And uh, as I began to climb, uh, and uh, the valley got narrower and narrower, it got later and later, and the clouds moved in, and it started to rain. And I had no shelter and, uh, or anything near it. So uh, I kept climbing, and I had a flashlight, and it got darker and darker and uh, rainier and rainier. And uh, I realized, uh-oh, I think I'm in trouble, you know. And finally, the valley kind of, uh, this valley went into a, a kind of a narrow, narrow canyon at the last point there. And uh, so I found my way up a rock uh, slide and um, found a place where I could sit. The problem was, uh, there was just enough room where I could sit up straight. Uh, I couldn't lay down. 
and I had a, a soggy sleeping bag and a soggy uh, down jacket. And, you know, I had been in India for, in Nepal for some years then, and thought that, you know, oh, I knew how to do this, you know. So uh, I began that night, um, and I started with, oh, all the practices I had been taught and knew. And as I began to work with them, uh, there was something else going on. They weren't working, you know. And um, whether it was my mantra practice or visualizations or anything that I could think of, you know, uh, was, and, and also the breath, the concentration. I couldn't seem to acquire it. And it was also very cold because uh, there was just, uh, very cold, it's, there was just between rain and snow at this point. And um, so there was quite a bit of hyperthermia there. And um, I then at that point realized, uh-oh. Um, you know, I'd had a friend, a, a Danish friend, who had done the same thing uh, a year before and had died. And so suddenly I became apprehensive that, you know, I didn't tell anybody. And there I was, you know, hours and hours and hours from uh, civilization uh, in the high mountains. And that um, there was really no recourse. So uh, it was actually a very uh, enlightening night because uh, as I began to sit there and it was kind of this rain, snow, sleet was coming down, um, I would go into story. You know about this? You know? And so uh, one story uh, was that, you know, uh, I was going to die. And I, as my Danish friend, I, I was, I, I'd blown it, you know. Interesting, the same time across the valley from me, uh, there was a young Australian boy who uh, during that fell and died. And um, I began this process of sitting there and trying to stay straight. Uh, but what would happen is, it was really my body language, is uh, I would feel the fear. And as I would feel the fear, I would lean back. And as I leaned back, there was this cold rock with water dripping down uh, that uh, would uh, hit me in the back of the head, you know. And I'd kind of straighten up. And then it had been many years since I had um, uh, been estranged from my father. So then I would go into fantasy and I would start uh, writing letters, you know. And as I, soon as I went into fantasy started, I would lean forward and then water would come down and hit me from the rock in the face, you know. And so it was this whole game that I got caught in between feeling the fear and then the wanting to be anywhere but there, you know. And uh, we do this, right? And it went on, uh, just to finish, you know, it went on all night. Um, and one of the kind of, uh, was it uh, incredible, it was incredible. In the middle of the night, it was pitch black because uh, the clouds were over it, is there would be these huge crashes. And, um, you know, I could hear these rumbles. The whole earth would shake, you know, where I was. 
and it went on. There would be uh, there were quite a few of them during the night, uh, but I I didn't even know what they were, you know. And then uh, obviously I survived it, and uh, morning began to kind of come, and uh, I uh, noticed that what this was, I was actually in a rock slide. And usually the, you know, the Himalayas are young mountains. And what it was, it was, uh, they had been dry for, I don't know, six or eight months. And then this wet had come and rain and had dislodged these boulders. And I realized, oh, I was in a boulder field and I was under one of the boulders, you know. So um, at that point, I, I kind of recognized that uh, there was also more here. And uh, and uh, so when I kind of looked out and, and started to get light, uh, I could see maybe not, I don't know, 200 feet maybe away uh, was a snow field. And um, uh, I think it was just one of those things in my life where I thought, oh, this is really uh, possible. And I went up to that snow field and uh, I looked at the blue-gray glacier faces around me. There was just blue light, you know, from these, uh, from this ice. And there was a moon setting and the sun rising. And so it was like one of those epiphany moments. It's like I suffered uh, for only for maybe, maybe it was 15 minutes before the clouds started to come back in and uh, the moon had set and the sun was somewhere in the clouds and it began to rain again. But I got it, you know? Uh, it was a physical moment uh, that said, oh, you know, uh, there is this uh, storytelling that uh, I'm constantly, I lean out and uh, nature says, wait a minute, uh, this isn't gonna answer it. And then the fear would come and I would move back. And so it was really a somatic experience between the kind of this capacity to, um, you know, what is it? Fear and fantasy uh, that we uh, do a lot on these cushions, you know, and uh, we make up a lot of stuff, you know. It's interesting because it's really, a lot of times there's this word called Vedana, which is uh, really the exploration of uh, pleasant sensation and uh, unpleasant sensation. And uh, they use sometimes neutral, but non-pleasant, non-unpleasant. And that we actually can, in some sense, begin to recognize uh, that um, these are the things that uh, push and pull us, you know. I think a lot of times when we uh, kind of sit, uh, it's very interesting if you start to look at what is pleasantness, you know. And what do you do when pleasantness arises, you know. Just go, oh, well, great, fine. You know, unfortunately, we attach 
we begin to grasp onto it on some level. And in that grasping then, um, you know, uh, the mind uh, is caught, uh, caught in its own uh, mirrored confusion or suffering or uh, lost somehow. And then other moments, you know, there's unpleasantness. Unpleasantness arises and um, it would be nice to just say, oh, I could just let go of it. But we don't do that, you know. Uh, then we kind of attach to it and uh, create things out of it. This is from Pablo Neruda. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well, a well will, where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for the fallen light with patience. A good description of our practice. So I want to kind of explore this, uh, this world of, in the fact that um, there is this pleasantness and this pleasantness uh, has in its nature attachment that uh, we'd like to cling to it and uh, hold it and make something out of it, you know. And there is actually uh, you know, in the sense the Buddha was not saying that pleasant sensations arise due to causes and conditions. And traditionally, uh, what we do uh, is you'll have uh, maybe 10 moments. That's what you're going to get, 10 moments of pleasantness. So you notice the first few moments, maybe three moments, you actually are there for them. And then something arises, and we'll simply call it desire. And this desire is to somehow uh, catch it, embellish it, or imprison it, or keep it, or make it more, whatever. It's actually based on attachment. You know? And that attachment, uh, that uh, is actually what we're trying to note and realize that there is this practice, this uh, mindful of the moment uh, that gives us some insight into how it works, you know. Again, the problem is not the object of desire, but the energy, the energy in the mind, the energy of desire to keep us moving, looking for that thing that really is going to do it for us. The wanting mind, the wanting mind, is itself painful. It is a self-perpetuating habit that allows us to be somewhere else 
grasping for something, even when we get what we want, and this is kind of the trick here, even when we get what we want, we want something more or different because the habit of wanting is so strong. It's the sense of being here and now is not enough. It's pretty straight, isn't it? You know. And I want to go back to Oren's uh, beautiful talk on this uh, incredible um, truth of uh, when that awareness, that mind, uh, actually recognizes, uh, you know, that you are kind of leaning, you're leaning out of the center of your experience and you are moving towards and attaching to and... um, And you think in some level that there is, uh, you know, uh, there'll be happiness there. There's one little trick here to this practice and how the mind works. And there's a Tibetan kind of story that I I like, I really like as a uh, example. And it's a little bird out on a ship. And that little bird, uh, is looking for land. The only thing out, problem is it's way, way out in the ocean. And so that bird flies out and it always has to come back to the ship. Just like your mind, you know. Uh, you think somehow that maybe you get onto something and you think it'll somehow it'll go somewhere. Well, guess what? You're just here, you know. You're not any place else. There's nothing, nothing going on here. You know, you're simply caught in the maze of your own, sometimes desire, and uh, and also kind of that opposite, uh, and the fear. You know. So these are kind of two pieces of this thing, of, of, of this leaning towards things and, and then grasping them and recognizing that, uh, yeah, pleasantness is fine. W- wonder if you could actually stay mindful. Pleasantness would arise, you'd have 10 moments of it, and then something else would happen, you know. But it's not really how we do things, but it's what we're, trying to see, see how this system, how this operating system works, and that we can create choice for ourselves. Otherwise, we are really just kind of, excuse my expression, kind of chasing uh, off into, uh, what, the little bird off, and realizing that it really can't go any farther, and so it immediately comes back. Difference of the bird and our minds is that we come back immediately. As soon as you recognize uh, that uh, whatever that story or feeling or sensation, uh, it arises, it's there for a moment, and suddenly you're back. And it's really a lot of the art here is, can you remember there's no place to land, you know?
There's also kind of the opposite side to this, which has to do with unpleasantness. And I hope that, uh, I hope you're not experiencing any of it, but if you are, you know, uh, there is, you know, that pushing away, it's kind of like, you kind of, to me, you kind of hit the rock, you know, and it's cold and it's wet. And uh, uh, in some ways it's more obvious than pleasantness. Uh, pleasantness has a, a seduction in it, a uh, uh, aversive mind. Um, you know, it has contraction in it. And our practice is, first of all, just to note that, okay, there is this pleasantness and there is this unpleasantness. And that they, they, they rise due to causes and conditions. You know, it's not, it's just life being life, you know. And here, as you sit here, you know, um, and I'm hoping this is not true, you know, that you have, uh, you know, some old story that you have been dragging through the mud, maybe, um, and uh, it's sticking to you, you know? And uh, with desire, it's this capacity to see it and let go of it and see that its nature is that all things arise and are impermanent. And that's really that story. You know, oh, you know, uh, it's a, whatever that desire, it's fleeting. Aversion, on the other hand, uh, is different, you know. Uh, it sticks. Uh, and it, uh, in some ways, it creates its own, um, you know, contraction and storytelling uh, that, you know, it, it entrances you. You go into a trance and you get captured by it, you know. And I'm not so sure, you know, I, I've heard so many stories over these, you know, so many years of doing this from people, you know. And uh, I'll say this, I don't know if the story you tell yourself about your life is actually true, you know. Uh, it's what you believe, I understand. And so in a way, part of the practice is, oh, can I see that, you know, maybe it's not exactly the way I imagined it to be. You know, and right there you have a little bit of opening, you know, and a possibility of, in a sense, uh, kind of letting it be or letting it go, because those are the fundamentals. But sometimes they're just too sticky, you know, and you get caught by them, uh, and you suffer, you know, and, uh, and of course you don't want to suffer, no one wants to suffer. But uh, here's the thing, uh, like the desire of seeing its nature and uh, the fact that, you know, it arises for a little while and it's gone, it's just in permanent conditions. Aversion captures and holds. And you can keep it for a long time and you can actually create an identity out of it. That's who I think I am, you know. 
And a part of this whole process here is, oh no, we need to liberate who we think we are, you know. Uh, and part of that process is uh, how to do that, you know. It's interesting that uh, such a simple practice, it can be just simply mindfulness. It has the tendency to uh, uh, diminish some of the charge. Uh, but loving kindness practice, where we actually recognize, first of all, you know, uh, I, I love uh, the practice of forgiveness, you know. Uh, and a lot of that forgiveness is just for yourself, you know. Um, how hard, how judgmental, how much suffering do you uh, create for yourself? It's a question, you know. And how much is your identity invested in it is a question. Who you think you are, you know. And so there is this forgiveness that uh, actually, you know, it's sometimes a long process. It doesn't just kind of come overnight, you know, but we work it, you know. And I think once there's some sense of forgiveness, there can also be this phenomenal truth, you know, that uh, works against that aversion is gratitude. You know, if you could just uh, every morning get up and, and, you know, no matter what the dreams are, and say, I'm so happy to be alive. And I'm so grateful for what I have and who I am now. So I like this story. It's one of the old stories of um, Saka. The Buddha once told the story of Saka, the ruler of the devas, the kind of angels. While Saka was out visiting to the far reaches of his land, a bitter, pot-bellied dwarf came to visit the castle. Finding the king absent, he went up and sat himself upon the throne. This was an act of supreme sacrilege. Saka's followers tried to bully, shame, taunt, and scare the dwarf away. He grew bigger and stronger in exact proportion to the resistance of his presence. The king was called back from his journey in order to get rid of the unwanted guest. Upon entering the throne room, he draped his robe over the shoulders of the dwarf and knelt in respect before him. With every act of welcoming and appreciation and recognition, the dwarf became smaller and smaller, uglier and more bitter, until finally, he simply vanished. Try that one. You know, you got one of those, you know, uh, 
whatever little things that you're holding on to. You know, it's amazing what a sense of forgiveness and some gratitude and uh, love can do uh, to those uh, really aversive states that uh, are part of our conditioning, you know. Anyway, I love that story because, you know, you all have your, is it gremlins? You know, that um, somehow come and uh, sometimes force you into believing uh, questionable conditions. So I think I can get away. You know, um, for years here, uh, one of the kind of, he was kind of like me, he was out there pretty circular. And uh, he was a a great physician and, uh, you know, disciple of, of Ida Rolf and a uh, great Gestalt therapist. Um, his name was Robert Hall and he just passed away just really recently. And he, he was probably the person for many years uh, here when we first started this uh, that I used to teach with. And, you know, he was, um, he was a character, you know, a real character, you know. So I, I'm sad to have seen him leave the planet, but he left a lot, you know. But he also was a poet, and I loved his poetry, and so um, I'm going to read one of his poems. It's called, and it goes with this talk about shadow and uh, all the gremlins and all that stuff. It's called The Wanting Creature. The wanting creature is loose, All the time he leers and lurks behind good thoughts, desperate bursts of hope. He corrals the unsuspecting, surprises everyone with his small promises and chic ideas. The wanting creature, born within, living only to get out and wreck violent greed. Go after him, see where he hides, with all the wreckage dripping from his fat and quivering jaws. There is nothing to lose. He has already destroyed last year's crop. He is no friend of anybody, only wants to feel good for good. Now tell me, you, that's all there is. That's all there is. Don't believe him. He'll trick you every time. Then you'll have to start. You'll have to start all over again. First, forgiveness. Then a resolve, a resolve to go on. Tiptoe your way past his dark cave. Hoping today is a day he sleeps. But you know, deep down, he's a very light sleeper. You know, so.
so I wish that you can get over it all. You know, uh, there is this truth that um, you were born uh, with this awareness. Uh, and it is always attaching itself to objects. Pleasant, unpleasant, non-pleasant, non-unpleasant. Continuously. And our practice here is, okay, that's how our world works. You know, but you can also turn your mind around on itself and see that there is this awareness It's not about the objects. It's not about through the sense doors, your feelings, what's happening right now. Uh, it is uh, this capacity to recognize that instead of attaching to the feelings or the objects or the sense doors, that there is this great gift that. Uh, no matter what your history is or what kind of damage you've had, it has never been affected. I also like the fact that it has no age. Uh, that's kind of nice, you know, and, uh, and never has, you know. So you can also turn your attention to this awareness and recognize that it, um, yes, it is always in relationship to things. But it also, uh, you know, if you want to equate it to something, it is that that, um, it's like the space in the room. Uh, there's a lot of us in the room, but there is a way more space than the objects. And so in a way, we begin to say, oh, that that knows uh, can hold. Uh, all of this. You know. And I like the fact that when we recognize that uh, it is not, even though it's there and it's with relation with things, and it can't be in the past and it can't be in the future, it's always, it's always here. And that uh, along with that awareness is the kindness, you know. It recognizes that separateness, separateness was untrue, you know. It's a great, great relief turn that attention that way and see that, you know, all this stuff we've made up about everything and that we're a lot more than that. I like that. After over 50 years of this stuff, I realized the awareness and kindness are all that ultimately exists. The rest is this, you know, 
this identity and the pleasant and unpleasant and non-pleasant, not unpleasant, playing uh, in this field that we keep getting trapped by. Oh yes, we came to rest in that silence, knowing somehow that our curious past with all its ferocity was dragging us down onto this restless seat. Oh, these teachings of respecting the power of the night and its long darkness, that infinite contraction when the fear grasps our sanity and throws us down the stairwell into the basement, into the basement of our minds. How could this be about liberation? Struggling with the inevitable of change and an aging body. Yet there are these moments. Yet there are these moments. Small little cracks. Small little cracks. Where life begins, begins to know itself. You are more, you are more than your stories or even your struggles. When the stillness of the dark is at its zenith, the light, the light has slipped under the carpet, giving us another chance, redemption, close at hand, questioning identity, these inherited and constructed views. Having done some of the work to turn yourself inside out, turning the mind heart, turning the mind heart on itself, lo and behold, that primordial, natural, pure awareness which has been with you ever since birth, unblemished, was your home, was your home all along. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for sitting in some of my rambling. Hopefully a sentence or so will be helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.